FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the end of another week here on Political Rewind. We're already well into April, which for me is frankly astonishing. Uh, the months are flying by for all of us. And, and in fact, we're only weeks away from early voting in the uh, May 24th uh, primaries. Uh, so campaigns are heating up. And uh, we're going to talk about the, uh, the governor's campaign, a little bit about the Senate race in the show today. But we're also going to start by talking about this extraordinary moment in American history yesterday. The first African-American woman confirmed to a seat on the United States Supreme Court. So let's talk about that uh, to start off the show with our panel uh, today. Um, we're joined by Professor Andra Gillespie. You know that she is a professor of political science at Emory University and also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Good morning, and uh, Andra, how are you today? Good morning, I'm fine, how are you? Great. Just great. I've really been looking forward to this show uh, uh, since the confirmation occurred yesterday. Uh, Charles Bullock is back with us as well. He's the Richard B. Russell Professor of Political Science at the University of Georgia. Chuck, you know, I, I, I decided to look at your bio uh, earlier this morning because I know there are things about your career that I haven't told our listeners about. And so I wanted to add a couple of, of notes here. Um, you served, have served as a consultant to attorneys general in 11 states over the years, and you've served as a consultant to states and local governments, some 70 of them. And since the 70s, uh, because you are the uh, premier expert on redistricting, you've consulted on statewide redistricting litigation in more than a dozen states. And I think our listeners need to know uh, just a, a, a little bit more about your career. How are you today? Well, I'm doing fine, right? Yeah. yeah. Any year that there's redistricting is a good year for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had a conversation on the show the other day about redistricting, and one of our panelists brought up this notion that we really ought to have a commission here in Georgia, as some other states do. But I pointed out the commissions haven't been entirely uh, successful no. in avoiding uh, gerrymandering either, Chuck. Well, that's right. Yeah, there are always the claims that you're on the losing side from a commission decision that the other side managed to pack it. And I also recall that um, back when Sonny Perdue was governor, he appointed a committee commission to look at that and it came up with some recommendations, which the legislature didn't even take time to look at. Yeah, yeah it went nowhere. Um, yeah. Rick Dent uh, is with us as well today, the vice president of Matrix Communications. Uh, Rick does a lot of government relations work, occasional campaign work, although not too much of that. And uh, Rick uh, goes back quite a ways in Georgia politics after coming here from Alabama. He was press secretary to uh, Governor Zell Miller back in the 90s. Rick, you also, probably more than anyone else I certainly deal with, track campaign spending on ads and keep track of the ads that are appearing, which we're going to talk about later today. So I'm really glad you're here today. Oh, absolutely. Look forward to it. Okay, let's start with this remarkable moment in history, which I think Raphael Warnock made a very important point about Andra, he pointed out that if it hadn't been for Georgia electing two Democratic U.S. senators, there probably would not be a Supreme Court Associate Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Yes? Well, um, so, yeah, in, in, in just uh, the respect that this certainly helped uh, President Biden get be, uh, you know, be able to get the nominee of his choice. Um, you know, I think that there's this larger question that we'll never really be able to get to is, would you have people like uh, Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski 
going along with Democrats to support the president and whomever he chose for uh, the Supreme Court? And would that have, have changed the outcome of the election? So numerically, if they were willing to, to play along, um, that would have, like, even with the absence of Warnock and Ossoff, like, that would have gotten a 51 vote kind of majority that could have gotten them past Mitch McConnell. But I, I would imagine that, you know, if McConnell had been in charge of the chamber, uh, what we could have been looking at is, I mean, we've already kind of signaled that he's going to do this going forward, is McConnell coming up with some reason to have, like, delayed or scuttled the vote from coming to the floor altogether and from, you know, even going through uh, committee hearings and, and, and the like. And that's a shame, and I think we need to ask that, because if he's saying that he'll do this now, um, especially next year when clearly it's not the last year of, of President Biden's term, um, that's just further evidence that, that McConnell isn't actually following any rules um, or isn't being consistent. He's just making up rules to go along for the name of obstruction and just for the purposes of being a dilettante. Well, in asking you that question, I realize, Andra, I sort of buried the lead. Um, as a successful African-American woman yourself, I just wonder how you personally reacted to the confirmation yesterday. Um, so uh, I, I was busy traveling and late for a meeting, uh, so I heard it in snippets. <laughs> Uh, very happy uh, to see uh, that Judge Jackson is going to become Justice Jackson. Um, it was actually really funny. I had a conversation uh, with a friend who I knew from Yale, and we were talking about the Yaleys, like, you know, who we overlapped with. And this friend happens to be uh, also a friend of, of, of Judge Jackson as well. Um, and so it was great to be able to talk and to talk about people who you knew or who knew people that you did know. Um, and and that, that's not something we always get to do. Um, so that's great. Um, I am actually still getting over the confirmation hearings. Those were triggering. Mm -hmm. Um, it, you know, people spend a lot of time in the media talking about, uh, judges and lawyers who are, ex ex uh, you know, sharing their experiences of, of harsh treatment. But even as somebody who doesn't work in that field, there are things that I've witnessed and, and experiences that I've had that actually parallel what Judge Jackson experienced um, during that confirmation hearing. And I hope that when the news cycle kind of fades, that we're actually still going to have a conversation about what micro and macro aggressions look like in work and about what shifting standards look like. Um, because what I saw with Judge Jackson is somebody who had done everything that people told her to do, and yet it still wasn't good enough. Um, and if people are going to oppose you just on principle because, you know, she was appointed by somebody with an opposite letter behind their name, that's one thing. Um, and I can respect people saying wrong party can't support you. What I have a harder time accepting is people making up ridiculous reasons to try to oppose her. So, and I've talked about mm -hmm. this, uh, you know, with, with, with my friends that I serve on a uh, social justice uh, organization board for, we were like, you implied that the woman was, a, you know, a pedophile, sort of a better. You uh, said that she was a terrorist, practically, because she was providing, you know, constitutional um, support so that, uh, so, so, that, so that even those who are accused of heinous crimes have uh, a measure of due process. Uh, despite the fact that she's married to a white man, you tried to claim that she was some sort of race radical who hated white people. Like, it was just ridiculous, and it was disheartening, and I'm not over it yet. I understand that. And we'll, I want to talk a little more about that in a moment, actually, about the Republican uh, behavior yesterday. But, Chuck, I, I think I, I want from you, too, your sense of this historical moment, despite Andre's accurate uh, depiction of how Republicans treated this whole process. Yeah, I put it in historical context, you know, for probably about 40 years. There was the assumption that whoever the president nominated would probably be confirmed, not just for the Supreme Court, but for every court. It used to be you had to go all the way back to Justice Parker back in the Hoover days to find somebody who wasn't confirmed. Then beginning with uh, LBJ's efforts to elevate a man who was already on the Supreme Court and making him chief justice, and that's really the first time where a nominee of the president who you know, didn't get confirmed. And then Robert Bork comes along. Democrats pull out all the stops to stop him. And again, if you looked at his record, you might not like the way he decided, but you'd be hard-pressed to say this man isn't competent. That, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. 
And unfortunately, you know, since then, you know, so often uh, these become pitched battles. They don't have anything to do with the competence, the training, the intellect of the individual who is being considered. It simply boils down to, well, if he's not wearing our, 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 our jacket, our jersey, then we're going to be opposed to him. So this has gone a long way towards you know, politicizing the courts. And, and, and as a result, the reputation of the courts, the way people feel about the court, they have some confidence in its decisions, has also taken a, a hit. And uh, I think that's maybe one of the greatest tragedies of all of this. And it's not something just related to Justice Jackson, but we've seen it increasingly time and time again. And unfortunately, I don't see anything which is going to stop this. It's, uh, the next nominee, whoever it is, is going to fight the same kind of battle. And if something should happen so that one of the conservative justices, so he should drop dead uh, you know, right now, and uh, Justice Biden, excuse me, President Biden goes to nominate you know, anybody, any Democrat, and it is going to be a real pitch battle. It's going to be far more vicious and long-lasting than what we've just seen, as bad as it was. Yeah. Yeah, Rick, um, as Andrew points out, uh, there were aspects of the hearings that were just, it's going to take a long time for people to get over them, I think. Um, you had Josh Hawley, Marsha Blackburn, Ted Cruz being especially aggressive in attacking her on, on disinformation. On a, it was a disinformation campaign. So that happened. But but what what I would like to ask you about is what happened yesterday. For, for a couple reasons. Number one, we know that her uh, 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 being on the court is not going to change the balance of power in the court. It's not as if Republicans were fighting uh, to avoid having a conservative majority on the court. I mean, you could almost say, okay, there's some justification, perhaps, if you're a conservative for that. But this doesn't change anything. Um, she replaces an already liberal uh, justice. Then, when it became clear that she was going to be confirmed, rather than uh, to revel in the moment, rather than to say, yes, this is an exciting moment in American history, Republican senators walked off the floor. And not only did they walk off the floor, but Mitch McConnell actually, in his final speech before the vote, where it was clear she was going to be confirmed, said, when it came to one of the most consequential decisions a president can make, a lifetime appointment to our highest court, the Biden administration let the radicals run the show. Today, the far left will get the Supreme Court justice they wanted. And then after the vote, they walked off the floor and let the Democrats, with three Republicans, to stay there and celebrate the victory. It just seems like it was such an unnecessary uh, action at the end of the process. To be open and honest, I have worked with Republicans before, in the past and currently. But with that said, as a group, they just can't help themselves. I get it. Democrats get traditionally 92 to 95 percent of the African-American vote. But it's not political science. It's political math. The white vote Republicans is shrinking, and they know that. If they just opened up the tent just a little bit, they're not going to get a majority of African Americans, but how about 10%, maybe 12%. You do that, you almost have a lock with that kind of coalition. Same problem with Hispanics. They can't help themselves. President George Bush understood that, and he won in Texas by attracting Hispanics, and he won the presidency by attracting Hispanics. But it's like these days, if Republicans have a choice between beating on you or letting you come in, they're going to beat on you. And I don't understand it. Because long term, it's not going to work. And people remember when they get beat on. Andra? So I, I remember being in the newsroom um, at 11 Alive on uh, on the night Barack Obama was elected president of the United mm -hmm. States, and so everybody was in there. Um, and when it got to the moment where the election was called uh, for President Obama, the uh, Republicans who were there to be analysts that night, you know, clearly weren't happy that their guy had lost. But I distinctly remember one of them saying, "This will be good for the country." Right. And mm. I, I respect the mm. class that 
that they took in that moment to say, we're disappointed by the outcome, but we understand that this is, is, is going to have to be the case. And when I was on PBS in 2016, right, I knew I had to keep a straight face right, that I just had to call balls and shots. It wasn't about whether or not I was rooting for one candidate or the other. And to see what they did yesterday, I went back and I, I looked at C-SPAN to see if I could see how the vote for Amy Coney Barrett, um, you know, went down in particular. And that looked a little perfunctory. It seems like people came in and they registered their votes and then they left and then, you know, so there wasn't anything for her so that she didn't get a, a, a celebration. But it didn't look like people deliberately stayed to, to witness history and then decided that they were going to try to make their own negative history by walking out and, and making a scene of the whole thing. It doesn't take much to be classy. Um, and I think they can help themselves, right, because I've watched it and witnessed it with my own eyes. It's just that these people um, have decided that they'd rather take the low road instead of the high road. And unfortunately, Right. You have lots of voters who don't penalize them. You can find other Republicans who can be more mature about this stuff. But unfortunately, that's not where our politics is right now. Chuck? To briefly underscore Rick's point, if Donald Trump had gotten one more percentage point of the black vote, he would have carried Georgia. <laughs> that's how close yeah. it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know what, Chuck? Uh, he, Natalie Mendenhall found something that I thought was fascinating. I had never known this before. It turns out that it wasn't until 1916, and some of you, the three of you may be aware of this, it wasn't until 1916 that the United States Senate even held hearings to confirm a president's nomination to the Supreme Court. They accepted the nomination. They voted on it usually in a uh, a pro forma way. What's fascinating about this is the first hearing was when Woodrow Wilson uh, named um, a Louis Brandeis, a Jewish uh, yeah. uh, lawyer, to the court. And there was such an uproar over the fact his religion, plus, um, Rick, the fact that he was a very wealthy attorney, that led the Senate to say they had to have a hearing. But here's an additional fact that Natalie unearthed. None of the uh, justices after 1916 appeared at the hearings themselves. It wasn't until 1939 that the first nominee appeared, and that, too, was a Jewish appointee, a nominee, a Felix Frankfurter. So it isn't as if we haven't seen prejudice, Rick, play out in Supreme Court nominations in the past. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, yes, it, it, it's really amazing. But, but again, to, to underscore your main point, Republicans had an opportunity. They had an opportunity, and they didn't take it. And like I said, it it doesn't make sense from a mathematical standpoint. Just open the tent a little bit, just a little bit, and you can lock yourself into elections in the future. I don't get it. But but I want to say— Chuck, let, oh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say— Go ahead. Just to maybe turn it back to a positive— the, the best comment I saw, I can't remember who said it, but they said, overqualified and overdue. I thought that in a nutshell. Because if you think about it, 1956, 1956, Rosa Parks sits in front of a bus, and it takes the 2022 for an African-American woman to sit on the Supreme Court. That's extraordinary. Overdue, overqualified. Okay, I I don't mean to keep going back to the negative, but Chuck, I think (laughs) listeners to the show know that I check in on Fox and Friends uh, most mornings, so you don't have to do it. And uh, this morning, uh, we had the historic confirmation. We had a horrific uh, Russian attack on a on a train station. Uh, which killed at least 39 people trying to flee. Um, And what Fox News played up as their lead story this morning was the Texas National Guard at the border running training exercises as they prepare for the so-called invasion 
of uh, immigrants that are going to follow the president's uh, triggering of uh, the ending uh, Title 42. We'll talk a little more about that later in the show. Uh, what was particularly ironic about that, Chuck, is part of that story also dealt with the fact that there were any number of more and more unaccompanied children coming in uh, trying to get into the country, and I couldn't help but wonder if they noticed the irony of te- of Texas National Guardsmen armed and with shields, and mm-hmm. uh, thinking about that in regard to children coming across uh, the border. So that's the echo chamber, Chuck. Well, yeah, yeah, and uh, again, to build on what what Rick has been saying, you know, this country is becoming increasingly diverse. I mean, state of Georgia, as we speak right now, may no longer be majority white. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's right kind of at the break point. If we look at our, our electorate, you know, only about 52, 53% of the folks who are registered to vote in this state are white. Now, the whole country is moving in this direction. Georgia is a bit ahead of the rest of the country and becoming increasingly diverse. But uh, the message should be out to both parties that you're going to have to build a very diverse kind of coalition if you hope to be able to consistently win elections. And you know, if you're going to do that, then you don't want to be seen as being overly hostile to any group which is trying to come to the American dream. Um, Andra, as we close out this part of the conversation, we should point out that she, unlike justices of the past, she will not take her seat on the court for a good three months. Uh, Stephen Breyer uh, announced his retirement at the end of the session in June. So it'll be some time before we actually have that moment in which she will sit on the United States Supreme Court. But, Andre, it's coming. Yes, it's coming. I mean, you know, this is one of those times where, you know, uh, where <clears throat> we actually see a, a justice replacing a living justice who is retiring. Um, so, I guess, you know, we had that with, with, with Anthony Kennedy, but I think most people kind of have in their heads Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so uh, because they died in office once their replacements were confirmed, they, you know, got to, to step in to take, the, to take their place. All right. Why don't we do this? Why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way? Because we want to come back and we've got some campaign news that I'm really eager to talk to the panel about. So, um Uh, uh, We'll take a break right now. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Political Rewind. Rick Dent, Chuck Bullock, and Andre Gillespie join me uh, for today's conversation. Uh, Chuck, I I think a good way we're going to get into looking at some of the spending uh, that Rick Dent's been documenting on the gubernatorial campaign and the Senate campaign in just a minute and listen to a couple of the ads that are out there. Uh, But a good way, I think, to get into it, Chuck, is to look at the latest polling. Emerson College and The Hill released a poll uh, the other day which confirms what we've heard from other polling sources, we've seen from other polling sources. Uh, Brian Kemp has a significant lead over uh, David Perdue, 11 points in this poll, 43 to 32%. And of significance, Chuck, the poll was conducted after the Trump visit to Georgia in which he reinforced his support for Perdue. Um, so what do you make of those uh, numbers right now, Chuck? Well, I think you'd rather be in uh, Brian Kemp's position than, than David Perdue's. Several things that have come out of this poll. One is if we look at the question they asked about, this is just asked of the Republican voters, does Donald Trump's endorsement make any difference? And it splits about one-third, one-third with one-third, 37%. So, oh, yeah, that's important to me. But an equal number says, yeah, I would vote the opposite direction. Other thirds say, I don't care, <laughs> one way or the other. But I think another thing that's interesting really here is that, uh, you know, there's this notion that as an incumbent, if you're under 50%, then you're, you're in trouble. You may be ahead, but you're in trouble. And again, think about the experience on the general election of Roy Barnes, who, no matter how much money he spent, was hovering around yeah. 50%. He'd you know, run a new ad, he'd get up above 50%, and three days later, the tracking polls would show he's back down at 47, 48%. And then there's another kind of rule of thumb, at least people scientists talk about, and again, Rick is the man in the field, may say, you know, professionals, we don't look at it that way. But the question of what happens to those people who are undecided, or in the case here, which may go to a runoff, of those people who voted for a candidate who gets eliminated. And this poll poses that. It first asks a whole range of candidates, 
And then it says, well, if it gets down to just a head-to-head between Kemp and uh, Purdue, what happens? All right, the rule of thumb is that incumbents are going to get beat about two to one by those people who are undecided, late decided. So if you look at what happens as you move from all the candidates to just a head-to-head, David Purdue takes up 7.4 percentage points. Uh, Brian Kemp, only 1.6 percentage points. That still leaves, according to the poll, 16% undecided. If you allocate them on a two-to-one basis, you end up with a dead heat, pretty much. You know, Kemp would be at 50.2% and uh, Purdue at 498 So, yeah, that 11 points that you see when you take the first cut at this, uh, yeah, it's what people are saying under that condition. But when it comes down to, to voting, maybe, in a runoff, which would be, I guess, in June, it may be a lot closer. Wow. Uh, Idra, weigh in. Um, so, you know, I, I don't disagree with Professor uh, Bullock. Uh, you know, no incumbent wants to be in the position where he's fielding off a, a serious primary challenge. Um, on the other hand, I think, I think Governor Kemp has held his own despite the challenges and despite the onslaught from uh, Donald Trump. Um, and I think it's actually really important for us to look at, you know, whether or not there was a bump from the rally a couple of weeks ago. I think the other thing that's actually really important in the polls is the fact that campus pretty consistently had about a 10-point lead at all the polls. And so even though there's some polling um, companies in there that I don't trust, they're ones that I do trust, and they're all saying the same thing. So if they're all saying the same thing, I think that there is some wisdom of the crowd there um, and, and suggests that, you know, people's methodologies are actually correct. And so I think the Purdue camp needs to take their position as the underdog in this race very, very seriously. Now, they may not be able to do much about it. It doesn't look like they have the resources to necessarily overcome this. But, you know, at, you know, we're going to be watching this race very closely. So Kemp can't take anything for granted. But Purdue can't think that just because he has the endorsement of Donald Trump that somehow that guarantees that he's going to be able to pull off a miracle without a lot of hard work and other things turning in his favor. Rick? Look, I, I have been on incumbent campaigns at 42%. It is a hole. It is a deep well. It is like pushing a boulder up a mountain one inch a day. And it explains a lot of what the Kemp campaign is doing right now. The way to read an incumbent race poll numbers is completely different than an open seat. It is about, as it's been stated here, the undecided. So when I've been on incumbent campaigns, you don't pay any attention to where your opponent is. It's your number that counts. you got to get to 50. It doesn't matter if you're ahead by 10. It doesn't matter if you're ahead by 20. You have got to get to 50. Look, Zell Miller, when he ran for re-election against Guy Milner, Guy Milner never came within 15 points of us, and we crapped on him for three months. And on election night, we won by an inch. We won by an inch. Guy Milner never got above 35 and was almost elected governor on election night. Well, and, so and, that's and, how and, you read them. Yeah, go. Yeah, and, and, and you make a good point, too. We've talked about it on the show before, that we just don't really know about that. Uh, I suppose you could call it the silent uh, majority in a way. We don't know how Trump in the long run might motivate. Those pro-Trump voters might in the long run turn out at the, poll, at, at the polls for Purdue. We don't know that. But, Rick, this is a good time to play one of the ads that you uh, uh, sent over to us uh, because you raised a great question. There's a Kemp ad in which we've got a number of Kemp ads, but one of them is an attack on David Perdue. And you, in sending that along, said, why is Kemp attacking David Perdue? So let's listen to this spot, the audio of this spot, and then talk about that. I don't blame China for taking advantage of us. I blame our leaders. Leaders like David Perdue. Millionaire David Perdue got rich, sending jobs to China. I lived over there. I've been dealing with China for 30 years. We outsourced every single product that we sold in our stores. Perdue sent our jobs to China. We have to stop our jobs from being stolen from us. We have to stop David Perdue. Okay, so Rick, 
um, one way I, I could imagine looking at that ad is that Brian Kemp has so much money that he might as well spend, burn a little of it going after a primary opponent. But I think you see it as more significant than that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, what I always say about when, you, when you're watching a political race, pay absolutely no attention to what a campaign says. Watch what they do. And right now, Kemp is going after Purdue. And you have to ask yourself, why? If he's ahead by 11 or 12 or 15, why do it? Because remember, when you go negative, you don't only just hurt your opponent, you hurt yourself as well. Your numbers go down a bit as well. He is going after Purdue for the very reason that we were all just talking about. He knows his numbers are too low. He's got to get the 50 and 43 and an 11-point uh, lead ain't enough. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, that was uh, something, you know, I, I would expect that towards the end of the cycle, so probably about around Mother's Day, we'll see much more positive ads from um, Ryan Kemp to try to salvage his, his favorability. Uh, that was certainly how my old boss uh, in D.C. used to used to do it. But, you know, the other thing that I think he wants to remind people is he's using tropes that were used against uh, David Perdue unsuccessfully. Um, in, in, in 2014 when he ran for the Senate. Um, but what he's hoping here is that while that wasn't necessarily persuasive to Democratic or to independent, um, moderate voters, you know, when Michelle Nunn tried to uh, leverage these arguments against David Perdue in 2014, what he's hoping for is to, one, remind uh, voters that while he doesn't have Donald Trump's endorsement, he still actually, it, you know, supports a lot of the same policies and, and, and has the same values and mindset that Trump has. And then also he wants to point out that uh, David Perdue is really an elitist and somebody who is a globalist and somebody who really doesn't sort of fit the populist thing. So even though he has the support of Donald Trump, right, it doesn't actually fit all that well, which is why he's losing. And so why would you want to hang out with a loser, right? I'm the one that actually fits your values despite what Donald Trump says about me. So, you know, I, I think he's doing it because he has to, uh, as, as, as Rick has said, but I think he also wants to, you know, uh, lean into some of the criticisms uh, that, you know, may have been lingering about David Perdue from his initial entry into politics in the first place. A particularly effective one because that's that 35, 40 percent of likely Republican voters who say Purdue's endorsement is important to them. If you're not paying all that much attention to it, you see, you know, here is Donald Trump saying something, and then it's negative of what comes on next, which is David Purdue, and then Trump is there at the end, and you could do that. Well, I, I guess maybe Trump really is behind uh, Brian Kemp. So it muddies that water in terms of what kind of cues are going to be picked up by the, the Trump voters. Um, Rick, the um, uh, we've talked already uh, um, in general terms about the fact. Andre pointed out that uh, right now Purdue doesn't have the resources uh, on right. his own campaign to, to uh, mount much of an ad campaign, but he is getting help from a, a pack. Talk a little bit about the money that's coming in uh, from this pack, and maybe what I should really ask you to do is start by giving us an overall look at the spending in the Georgia governor's race so far. Sure, and, and real quick, I want to go back to your theory about let's just hit Purdue just to hit him. Remember, you're going to need Purdue and his people to win in the general election. Why anger? Well, that's point. Yeah. yeah. Why anger those people if you don't have to? Because I've been. That's why uh, you're the professional. I just talk for a living. <laughs> I have, look, I've been in nasty primaries. I've been in nasty primaries. It's hard as hell to unify. I'm just yeah, telling you. It's yeah. Under any circumstances. Um, right now, we are looking at, in the governor's race, the Democrats have spent a little over uh, $11 million. Republicans have spent uh, a little over $14 million. That's kind of interesting because the Democrats really don't have a primary. So Stacey Abrams and, her, Abrams and her allies are basically keeping pace right now with their positive messaging. Uh, you're right about Purdue. He's only spent about 918000 right now. Um, Kemp and the Republican Governors Association uh, are planning on a $10 million buy. They're in, in the middle of that right now. Uh, but, yes, uh, 
a PAC called the Georgia Action Fund has come to camp um, to Purdue's rescue right now and is running a negative ad against uh, the governor. And they've put about $1.6 million. So they are really carrying the load right now for uh, Purdue. The problem is that ad buy is about to stop. And as of right now, there's no future purchases either by them or by Purdue. Doesn't mean that won't change, but that's where it stands right now. So, um, Andra, the the ad that attacks Kemp uh, really is completely in keeping with uh, the way Purdue is running his campaign. It's that Brian Kemp had the opportunity to uh, 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 stop the certification of Georgia's presidential election. He failed to do so. We've got to get him out of office uh, as soon as possible. Uh, Natalie, do we have that, that spot that we can listen to, please? Brian Kemp claims, I led the fight to aggressively investigate all allegations of voter fraud. The truth is, Kemp dismissed concerns about voter fraud in the 2020 election. As governor, you could call for a special assembly. You have not done that. Kemp refused to call a special session before the runoff, and the widespread illegal ballot harvesting continued, electing two Democrat senators. If Kemp can't beat voter fraud, he won't beat Stacey Abrams. Uh, by the way, Andra, the uh, voice saying you could have uh, uh, stopped it was Bill Hemmer, Fox News anchor, in an interview with Brian Kemp on Fox News. Andra, your thoughts? Um, well, lots of thoughts. One, Republicans are leaning into the big lie, and that represents a lack of moral leadership here. Um, so Governor Kemp, Secretary of State uh, Brad Raffensperger, are the heroes in the story, right, because they stood up to their own party, um, and they just paid attention to common facts and good sense. This is also dangerous in terms of just the health of our democracy. If you keep on reinforcing this lie over and over again and people start believing it, it actually will eventually have a very destabilizing effect on our democracy because people can't accept when they lose elections, right, fair and square. Um, you know, the other thing that, that's in there is this little sort of slight implication there, sort of the subtext is Stacey Abrams cheats at elections, right? So if you can't stand up, to voter fraud in 2020, then you're not going to stand up to voter fraud that's going to be committed by Stacey Abrams. And so I hear sort of, you know, sort of subtext of, of black criminality there um, and, and, and voter fraud that are, are very, very troubling. And I would, you know, argue that's a, 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 a dog whistle, sort of, you know, some coded language that's going on there. Um, so, you know, just in general, if the best you got is a lie, that does not speak well. It doesn't mean that you can't be successful, but that speaks very poorly on our democracy, and it speaks very poorly for the foundation of your candidacy. Yeah, I think a little bit further, I guess, than Andre did. She said that people may start believing it. All the polling indicates that most Republican voters in the state not only they do believe it. You know, and this is you know, a year, year and a half past that election. Indeed, most Republican voters have serious qualms about what's going to happen in 2022, whether or not our electoral system is going to be fair and accurate there. And this is even after the passage of SB 202 last year, a justification of which was that this would restore belief in the fairness of our elections. So, yeah, that the Republican vote is, is one which, you know, truly believes or has largely bought into the, the Trump message. I think an interesting thing to go to uh, what Rick has been talking about with regard to the campaign spending. Now, is Donald Trump going to be so committed to David Perdue that Trump is going to put some of his skin into the game? I mean, he has, what, $100 million more than that that he has raised in his own pack, and he hasn't spent a dollar of it on behalf of, of uh, any of his candidates here, any of his team that he's got running in Georgia. Obviously, he's willing to weigh in on that. Then, yeah, David Perdue's message will will get that kind of push behind it that will make it maybe the equal of the message which is coming out of the governor's camp. And and remember one thing, and we're kind of forgetting about Stacey Abrams. She's a winner right now, whether she's ahead or not. But she's a winner right now because, as I pointed out, right now the Republicans have spent $14.2 million on the governor's race. That's $14.2 million that is not aimed at Stacey Abrams. They're spending yep. it to fight amongst themselves. So in, in that regard, she's winning right now because of that. 
Well, Rick, we have not forgotten about Stacey Abrams because while the Republicans are shooting at each other, it leaves Stacey Abrams in the very enviable position of being able to spend her money on positive ads uh, about her career. Let's listen to one right now and then talk about it. When I didn't win the governor's race, not getting the job didn't exempt me from the work. And so I didn't quit. I got back to work, paid off the medical debt of 68,000 Georgians, helping small businesses stay alive, making sure they had the financing they needed, and putting money into the pockets of families. I was raised that when you don't get what you want, you don't give up. You try again. That's the job of governor. So, Rick, um, clearly there have already been attacks on Stacey Abrams. And although I'm not going to play it right now, um, there's a Kemp ad that, in fact, does attack her before talking about his accomplishments. Nevertheless, she is prepared for a much bigger onslaught down the road. And so although she is the best known political, certainly Democrat in, in the state, Um, she's doing everything she can right now to inoculate herself against some of the worst attacks that are headed her way, Rick. Oh, absolutely. And she is just banking positives right now. Uh, What you need to know in terms of the numbers, and this is significant, right now, this week, and it was last week as well, she is spending more on television than Governor Kemp and the Republican Governors Association combined. Okay. Combined, which is why Kemp and the RGA is going after a little bit. Most people say don't fight a two-front war, but they understand a very important principle here. He's got to beat David Perdue, but he can't let Stacey Abrams just build and build and build. And so they've got to do something about this ad buy right now. And it doesn't look like she's going to fade in terms of those numbers as well. Andra? Well, I mean, and Abrams has the resources that she's going to be able to keep on doing this. So, you know, she's going to have summer ads. You know, there isn't really going to be a lull, you know, until Labor Day when you start to see the onslaught of more ads in the heyday of the season. You know, I think in some ways this particular ad is a little defensive, in part because it does respond to um, some comments she made in a speech early on where she said she'd done the work of governor for the last four years and people kind of were a little taken aback by that. Right, so this one uh, conveys um, a lot more humility and hard work. One of the things that I, I have, you know, always taken note of when I've seen this ad is the idea that she said when I didn't win in 2018. So there was this acknowledgement there that I think it stands in stark contrast uh, to Donald Trump um, and his surrogates who still can't, you know, accept the fact that Joe Biden is the legally and duly elected president of the United States. Uh, <laughs> But that also, you know, Stacey Abrams was the one who was used as the justification for people kind of, you know, doubling down on the big lie. Well, Stacey Abrams didn't concede, so why should Donald Trump? Um, And I said that Stacey Abrams never was, you know, attempting to stay in the building or attempting to move across town. Um, You know, so, yes, she, you know, didn't concede, but she also didn't try to, like, you know, set people up to, you know, to uh, start a riot, you know, or potentially wage a coup. And so I think she's trying to provide those contrasts there and actually inoculate and and protect herself going forward. Chuck, let me give you the last word before we have to take a break. Yeah, I think what uh, Kemp has learned, perhaps a lesson from the 2020 Senate runoff, or Senate primary on the Republican side, where Republicans, uh, Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins, were so busy beating up on themselves. And that allowed Raphael Warnock to have a free field where he could run very positive ads, introduce himself, and uh, you know, kind of stay above the fray. And that's the situation which we're seeing again now, although, as Rick points out, yeah, Kemp has taken a few swipes at, at Abrams. So it, uh, maybe her path is not quite as clear as Warnock's was, but you know, that, that does put the Democrats in very good shape when they're not having to fight a bitter battle in order to get the nomination. You can score points right now with the opposition, kind of since you're not on the field against them. All right. Um, thank you for a great discussion uh, in that segment. Let's get to the final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Mm-hmm. 
I'd like to try to hit a couple more items a little more briefly with the short time we have left in the show. I should start by pointing out that everybody in Washington seems to be getting COVID. Natalie reminds me Raphael Warnock has now tested uh, positive as uh, well. So this virus is not going away anytime soon. Rick, very quickly, without going into great detail, because we'll do this at another time, one of the most astonishing figures you have is that in the Senate race, Democrats have already spent essentially $54 million to support Raphael Warnock's bid for re-election. Republicans have spent $5.4 million. And one of the reasons that's significant is that you point out to us that um, Democrats have already locked in ad time all the way through the general election. And that inventory is going to start getting a little more sparse when Republicans have their candidate. Right. The uh, Senate Majority Pack has already bought $24 million for the fall campaign, and that will support uh, Senator Warnock. Warnock. It, it, here's the, the interesting thing. Warnock himself has already spent $24 million. Now, that compares with Herschel Walker, who spent a grand total of 826000 So what that means, folks, is that right now Senator Warnock is probably out well, he, in fact, is outspending Herschel Walker 24 to 1, and he may be uh, losing. 24 to 1, and Senator Warnock might be losing. Yeah, that's, that's it, Chuck. I mean, you're, you're, you're a, you're a, you were around University of Georgia for the glory days of Herschel Walker. Maybe he doesn't need to spend uh, to, uh, to win that Senate race. He does, no. I mean, he's still fairly comfortable with regard to getting the nomination. Uh, and so, yeah, he, he's not debating. He's not meeting with reporters. Uh, he's just relying upon the name recognition that he built beginning 40 years ago. So he looks in pretty good shape. And again, the earlier conversation we had about the problems with the incumbents, you know, in this case, uh, Raphael Warnock's the incumbent, and he's not hitting 50%. Indeed, he's actually trailing in most all the polls. Yeah. So, it's easy to understand why he would have already spent $24 million and his supporters would go out and be spending, you know, buying up everything they can because they need to. Andra? So, two observations here to just kind of piggyback um, off, off of that. Like, you know, when you see increased spending, right, that's a signal of, of the competitive nature of a race. So if somebody thinks they're going to win in a cakewalk, they don't spend money. Um, and so the fact that Senator Warnock um, and his allies are definitely sort of suggests that this race you know, is competitive and that he doesn't have a lock. I think on the on the flip side, Herschel Walker doesn't have to spend a lot of money. And this is very Trumpian. And so, you know, especially since there's the attack ad against Stacey Abrams about her being a celebrity in Gallivant and all over the world, right, which is very reminiscent of the attack that John McCain tried to use against Barack Obama in 2008. Um, so, like, you know, if you're a popular black person, then therefore you just must be famous and trying to ride your fame. There is that attack on politicians, and then there is sort of where you are in a different stratosphere. And Herschel Walker is in that stratosphere, and I think he's not that different from Donald Trump. Donald Trump didn't spend much, right? You know, it was Jeb Bush who had, you know, the hundred-plus million-dollar war chest. Uh, and he needed it because he wasn't, you know, he had no chance of winning, uh, and then really wouldn't have had a chance of winning if he hadn't had that type of bank on his side. I think Walker is sort of there in that particular stratosphere. We have to ask ourselves whether or not we should give sort of beloved celebrities like that this type of pass when they're running for office and need to be held up for accountability and for scrutiny. Um, okay, one last item. We don't have a whole lot of time for it, but I, but I mentioned it in the headlines of the show, so I want to get to it now. Marjorie Taylor Greene has been all over Twitter again, getting national attention. And remember, she is the congresswoman in the 14th district, so we can't ignore her. Number one, she said that Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, and Susan Collins were pro-pedophile because they were supporting uh, the nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, uh, and then she uh, tweeted out that she—well, I'm sorry, she didn't tweet it out. She, she made comments in a talk that it, even though Judge Jackson may not know what a woman is, she does. A woman is a servant uh, to her husband, essentially, and is definitely of the weaker sex. So, Chuck, here, here's my question. Every time I talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene on the show— listeners say what I get they would say. Why do you even bother to give her attention? But Chuck, we cannot ignore her. She has become a force in Washington. 
Yeah, I think the uh, thing to really be concerned about, if you think that what Marjorie Taylor Greene says is, is nuts, is that she has the potential to become a role model for a number of others who may take her same approach because, like, you know, if you're a candidate out there or you're a junior Republican, you look at this and you say, my gosh, here she is. She's only a freshman. She's raised more money than many, many senior uh, members of either party have. She's on the news all the time. Uh, she's perhaps building a position where she could run statewide or whatever else. Mm-hmm. So I can see a lot of other people looking at her and saying, I can do the same kind of thing. I can make those kinds of allegations. I can get on the front page of the paper. I can get talked about. So that is, I think, the, <laughs> what we may be, should be most concerned about is not that she's unique, but that she may be a prototype for what we may see a lot more of. Uh, Rick, just quickly, could you run a successful campaign against her in the 14th District? Is there a way to do it? No. I think she's unbeatable. I think, I think she's unbeatable, and she raises money. Uh, that's um, that's amazing. What I hope, I hope that she will run for governor one day because I want to watch that. I want to see what the Republicans do, and give me some popcorn and a coke and let me watch that. Well, Andrew, what worries me about that is that the Republicans who have stayed in line with Donald Trump, I don't think have shown a lot of independence that they might be willing to uh, suddenly uh, uh, speak out against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, and I mean, and, and, and that shows the places where parties are weak. Once when parties are stronger, they used to be able to keep their folks in line. So we shouldn't be like listening to people who spread QAnon conspiracy theories. And while I agree with Rick that she's probably unbeatable for this cycle and maybe the next, eventually her constituents are going to realize that she hasn't gotten anything done substantively. So no laws. And also, like in terms of things to bring back for the district, I don't know how effective she's going to be at doing that. And I think that is going to end up being her Achilles heel. All right. We are completely out of time for today's show. I have to say it again. This is one of those days. If I could get another hour with uh, three of you, I'd be a very happy guy. But we're going to give way to uh, NPR in a moment here. So uh, Chuck Bullock, Andre Gillespie, um, and Rick Dett, I really appreciate it. Terrific conversation to finish out our week on Political Rewind. Um, One last note before we leave you for the weekend. Remember, we'd love to have you subscribe to the Political Rewind newsletter. A lot of you already are, which is very uh, gratifying to us. Just go to gpb.org slash newsletters. Among other things, in addition to the political news, I I wrote an item that I I hope you'll look at. I talk about why the power of theater right now is perhaps one of the forces that can bring us together across all of the differences that are making us so uh, uh, toxically angry at one another. And I talk about a play that um, the great director Kenny Leon has running right now in Chicago, which I think accomplishes just that. So check out the newsletter for that and all the political news as well. In the meantime, uh, we're out of time for today. I will see you again on Monday, so take care. Stay healthy, everybody, and have a great weekend. Bye-bye.